Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is Made in New York, the people, projects, and policies that represent the cutting edge in New York's movement to decarbonize buildings. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2022 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome, everyone, to Radio BX. I am Yatza Frank, your host, and I'm joined uh, today by Lane Burt, who's the managing principal uh, at Ember Strategies. Uh, we here at BX first began working with Lane through our work with the Empire Building Challenge team at NYSERDA. And um, Lane has been doing some really fascinating work with the EBC team uh, and with us. And, and so we thought it would be really educational for our audience to kind of hear more about the work that Lane's doing um, broadly and also specifically uh, for NYSERDA um, and sort of talk through that and and where our industry is is headed um, in the next few years. Lane Burt, welcome to Radio BX. Hi, Yatza. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Lane, although you're, you know, a mechanical engineer by training, you sort of came to your work, as I understand it, um, in the built environment, largely through policy advocacy and environmental lobbying. I wonder if you could tell us sort of about how you found that path and and sort of brought you to where you are today. Yeah, I I guess, you know, like a lot of folks, when they, they, they look back on their career, they kind of applied a narrative to it that maybe wasn't so clear at the time. I'm definitely in, in that camp. So <laughs> I'm from a family of engineers, actually. My, my grandfather started a HVAC company, commercial HVAC in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina in the 50s. So my dad ran it up until recently. So I, I sort of was working around that as a default. And now looking back, I can kind of see the path as, as somewhat of a acceptance of that expectation and also a rebellion against it and see, you know, it, it looks like I've been trying to avoid being an engineer despite all the engineering work that I've, what I've done. So that's really how I ended up in DC. You know, I graduated school and then worked as an energy modeler in commercial buildings for a little while. And I went back to grad school explicitly to try to do something more green, you know, kind of had the, uh, read Paul, um, Paul McKibben, Paul or, uh, Amory Levins, all the, all the books that were out at the time really lit a fire under me. Right. So I went back to grad school, did mechanical engineering, but had a alternative energy focus. And even there, you know, it was just buildings that made sense to me. So I stayed in mechanical engineering, started a PhD and then stopped it because it was taking too long. Um, started looking around for jobs and I ended up being hired by the Natural Resources Defense Council in DC to do a lot of policy and advocacy work. And, you know, that, that set up a uh, period of work in DC that lasted till 2013. I moved over. I was with the U.S. Green Building Council for a while there as well. Um, and I would, you know, I'll tell every young engineer that if you want to do something different, go to DC, see how the world really works, <laughs> see see how this stuff gets made, contribute what you can. There is no downside. It'll it'll set you up to do a lot of different things uh, later on. Yeah. 
And and so what is your focus specifically at Ember Strategies? And who are your clients? How do they how do they find you? So it's a good question how they find me. Uh, kind of word of mouth and known relationships, I would say. Um, it's a good mix. So when I started Ember Strategies, it's, you know, it's just me, by the way, single single person consulting shop. Um, I did do more of the kind of policy and advocacy work. Uh, you know, City, City Energy Project was actually among my first clients, and I know that you know the origin story for that project is wrapped up with the origin story for for BEX um, right. and Plan NYC, and you know the efforts of Lori Kerr, Ashok Gupta. Absolutely, yeah. So I was working with them. You know, pushing pushing benchmarking and auditing around different cities. Um, while I was at USGBC, I also I got to know a lot of the what I would call the greenies in the real estate industry, and you know I guess they they grew to trust me. So now over the years I've been independent. The, the consulting work has really moved from more policy and advocacy and more public sector to more private sector. So now my clients are folks that are looking at decarb or indoor environment quality. And you know, thinking about scaling, so I do a lot of work with with Google's development team. Uh, they're looking at ground ups here on, on in the Bay Area on the peninsula, um, helping Salesforce with their emissions reduction team. And then I work with some larger portfolio owners like Pines and Tishman Spire on you know similar similar topics. Um, for for me, it all makes sense when you think about you know the, the, these issues being at the intersection of technical and political complexity. That that's what I found I'm pretty pretty good at, uh, at least as good as anybody. So I try to help them there. That's great. And, you know, recently you've been working with both the San Francisco Department of the Environment and what we call NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, uh, on a similar sort of project, kind of developing a tool to help building owners map out capital planning um, to improve the performance of their buildings, sort of aligning decarbonization strategies with their capital planning. Uh, Tell us about how the project for San Francisco came about. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty interesting story. I'd, I'd say, you know, San Francisco, kind of a, a leading city thinking about these these issues. You know, they weren't part of that original city Ener- energy project group, um, but they kind of already had some of the ordinances that a lot of those cities passed or, you know, benchmarking and energy audits specifically. And they've been doing a lot of thinking about, you know, where where the city buildings needed needed to go. So I, I'd known them, uh, worked with them. Uh, before uh, and at the time, I was actually advising the Energy Foundation on the different, you know, efficiency-related grants that they were getting, and there was some frustration that that you know there wasn't anything new coming in in terms of the proposals. And Energy Foundation had this—I I don't, I don't remember if they suggested it or or the San Francisco Department of the Environment suggested it—but they they basically paid me to go to San Francisco Department of the Environment and work with the department to think about these issues and where they wanted to go. Um, and that was, you know, kind of a great gig. I think we, we, we made a lot of progress, but it was really in the approach to decarbonization. Right. And the tool came out of trying to assess what was going wrong with the existing policies. Hmm. Um, benchmarking tells, tells you how, how you're doing compared to your peers. And then audits tell you how to run your building better but those are both today, you know, they're not forward looking. There's no sense of where you should be headed. And really they kind of work at cross purposes. If everybody in like San Francisco gets a gold star or in this case, an energy star, it's kind of hard to motivate them to think about changing things and, and doing better. Right. Right. So um, we kind of 
thought about what, you know, like the, the messages that we were sending out to the, to the local building owners. And this was, I would say, my major contribution is to kind of see this world through their lens and realize that, yeah, we're getting kind of confused responses because we're actually sending mixed signals. You know, <laughs> we're not being super clear about where we think they ought to be and what they ought to do today to get there. So the first kind of remedy we came up with was to take what we saw as, as sort of useful interactions, the energy audits, and try to get them focused on the future, add like a time dimension. Basically, instead of, of sending a building engineer in to say, how does this building with these systems run better today? To just say, well, like, you know, where should this building be in the future? And what's the smartest plan to get there? Turns out they're fundamentally different exercises. So that was the origin of the, the tool idea is like, let's build something that looks and feels like an energy audit tool that engineers can use to go through this new process and ask these new questions. You know, you know, while they're there in the building, they're doing all the same stuff. They're collecting the information about the systems and, you know, fixing problems, identifying problems to be fixed too, but they're just, they're just thinking about it differently. So um, it started as the strategic energy assessment. And the idea was, well, let's, let's, let's turn an audit into more of a capital plan. Like let's, look at year two, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and say when you should budget to do what things. Uh, and that was the basis of the tool. When, when decarbonization became the, the main focus, then it was a very natural shift for that SEA to become the SDA, Strategic Decarbonization Assessment Tool, uh, and to point people in that direction who are trying to look towards where they needed to go to get to where the city wanted them to be. Um, and then the other kind of big reframing piece that we did came out of, you know, I, I would call it some light scenario planning, um, but trying to get the city to think about building owners a little, little differently instead of thinking of them as like the regulatee and them as themselves as the regulator. Um, think about, you know, where the building owners and the cities have aligned interest because at the end of the day, you know, the, what do building owners really own? I mean, yeah, it's a building, but it, it's also a share in the future prosperity of the city. So if the city does well, the building owner is going to do you know, pretty well. If the city doesn't do well, if it doesn't handle these sort of existential problems around climate risk and resilience and um, decarbonization, well, it's, it's it, the building owners are not going to do well in spite of that. That's just not how things are going to go. Yeah. So w- when you look at it from that lens, you know, the city needs to communicate a whole lot better. <laughs> They've got to send clear signals. They've got to got to focus on helping those building owners avoid missing the opportunities that are in front of them to decarbonize. You know, that's, that's really, it's a different, it's a different place to be and a different mindset from the regulatory mindset. Right. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about this also is that uh, just as you're saying, it clarifies the direction that people should be heading in terms of decarbonization strategies. It also feels like it has the potential to clarify for building owners in some ways, like how much money they actually have to spend <laughs> on some of these things. I think there's a there's this sort of um, there's this issue in the industry that they kind of see any a lot of these measures as purely additive. And one of the things that this tool does, it, it, it has felt to me when I've looked at it, is it helps people think about the fact that they're already spending money on their buildings to do various things. It's not free to own a building year on year. Um, and so it it really focuses on what the incremental costs might be of a of a better or different um, uh, system with with regard to decarbonization. Um, and so that seems uh, really powerful as well. 
in in translating or sort of uh, this tool from San Francisco to Nyserta, um, how did the tool need to change for those different markets? I mean, I it's sort of been it's always been interesting to me the the different approaches essentially on the West Coast and the East Coast um, with regard to building performance that on the West Coast, and I think largely because it's lower density. And so you can have PVs on a on your large roof of your one or two-story building and it and it it you know delivers a pretty significant percentage of your yep. electricity use. And then and so there's a real focus on net zero um, and and the sort of language of that ilk. And here on the East Coast, we have taller buildings, denser communities largely. You know, there's a real focus on 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 percentage reduction uh, on on efficiency um, yeah. in that sense, um, and and so I wonder if that if that manifested itself uh, in the tool or or what other changes you had to make, kind of moving from from these two different coastal markets. Uh, I mean, there there weren't as many differences as as you'd expect. You know, our focus was kind of on, on your earlier point about making the business as usual case a little more realistic and not pretending that you're not going to spend money on this building to, as you said that's the bigger lift the the differences between you know San Francisco and New York somewhat from from the approach uh, you know the the San Francisco folks were more focused on eliminating on-site use of fossil fuels mm-hmm. sort of a simpler question um a simpler exercise and it kind of helps the engineers see what to get out of the building as opposed to what to add, because you can add an infinite number of things. But if you know you got to work around the, the elimination of on-site use of fossil fuels, it's kind of a clarifying constraint. Um, New York's a little more complicated, right? you got simultaneous heating and cooling, and obviously heating is the big <laughs> driver of the climate concern compared to a much more friendly climate over in San Francisco where you your space heating is is real, but it's not it's not it's not the behemoth of a problem that it is on the East Coast. Right. So different technical solutions and different ways to think about them. You know, all of it's trying to manage the uncertainty and, and trying to understand how you can prepare for a solution, maybe that doesn't exist yet, uh, but you would know be be well prepared to to identify it and go after it when it does become real. Um. And how do you how do you test? How do you learn? How do you how do you figure out how to do the make ready work kind of strategically in the early years so that you're ready to do the big work in the later years if that's kind of where you know the, the building's capital plan is driving you? So you know, thematically all the same, but the content, you know, the technical solutions are quite different. And was the focus on kind of the net present value of the property and discounted cash flow that we see. Yep in the SDA now, was that embedded in San Francisco or sort of added on when you're working with NYSERDA? It was there already. Um, you know, so, you know, the energy audits are, are pretty good. And the core of the energy audit that you start with really think of it like an equipment catalog. Like that's, that's all the stuff that's there. That's what you're looking at. Say, well, I got to get rid of this stuff and I got to get better stuff that does this thing. Um, it's kind of your, your basis for both understanding what business of usual really is realistically and thinking about, you know, what the solutions might look like to move the building forward. So what we did is, is first, like, add a time dimension. So I, I would say that the, the concepts that are more commonly found in, in something called a property condition assessment, which isn't energy specific, but it's really, you know, people looking at, well, when are you going to have to repave that driveway? Or when are you going to have to deal with the, the buckled concrete in the sidewalk? Or when are you going to have to deal with window replacement? Um, 
and how do you budget to make sure the fund you have the funds to do that? And how, how do you show that you're being responsible in terms of your financial planning? So we took that same concept and brought it over into an energy audit context. So I tell people it's an energy audit plus a property condition assessment. So then once you have that and you've got the time dimension, you just sort of inevitably have to speak the language of real estate and future cash flow, which means discounted cash flow modeling. Um, there's a lot you can do with it, and that's where the secret sauce is. That's where you know people like to do things different ways and look at it different ways. Um, but it was kind of, I'd say, inevitable that like it, 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 just like everything else in real estate, it, it, it's going to go that way. Um, and and really, the SDA, just so folks know, like it's it's an Excel tool. It's publicly available both um, from NYSERDA and from the San Francisco Department of the Environment. And I, I always encourage people to look at it, but not necessarily jump into using it because it really exists as sort of a proof of concept, right? That you can do all of this in one place, that you can build a bridge from an energy audit to a decarbonization plan that is a capital plan. It is absolutely doable. And better than that, you can kind of, you can stress test your plan. Like you can look at what, you know, what changes of your assumptions might lead to different outcomes just to make sure your decarb plan is pretty good. But I, 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 I think that when people start doing this for their own buildings or start doing it at some scale with many buildings, we'll find that probably, you know, an Excel tool isn't, isn't how the world's going to change. Um, there's going to be different tools and different processes that people develop that work better for them. So it's kind of a, I, I pointed out to people as like a prototype, mine it for all it's worth. It's public sector. You know, there's a lot of um, interesting stuff in it. Um, but you know, it's not, it, I don't think an Excel spreadsheet is, is the future for everybody for sure. Yeah. So I should also note for folks, uh, listening that, um, the tool, uh, is available as, as, as Lane mentioned on the NYSERDA website, you can find it, you know, you could Google empire building challenge knowledge base. You can find it through links on the high rise, low carbon series page on the building energy exchange website. Uh, that sort of collects all of our work and, and links to a lot of the work the EBC team at NYSERDA is doing. Um, so you, you can find it uh, pretty easily through either of those um, portals. I, I know, Lane, that in the in introducing the SDA tool here, you sort of worked with the first cohort of partners uh, in the Empire Building Challenge and then made some modifications to the tool kind of based on that work. Could you talk a little bit about sort of what you learned working with those partners and how that improved the tool? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, EBC is a great program and it's, it's, it's really fundamentally targeting that 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 process of figuring out where a building should be and then trying to find the smartest path to get to that endpoint. So it, the, you know the tool fits in perfectly with what uh, EBC is trying to do. What we continue to learn is, you know, I would say more on the user interface side because you know we're not just like conceptually in terms of how do you engage with the spreadsheet because you've already heard. I don't think you necessarily maybe that you should, but just to be clear with people at every step along the way, this is what you're trying to do. And these are the types of outcomes that you're trying to get from this piece of the broader decarbonization planning process that, you know, that had never been done really before. So EBC getting a bunch of, of really highly qualified teams to try to do it all together all at once. It was like the perfect learning grounds for us to see, you know, what were they getting? What were they not getting? What were we being clear about? What were we not being clear about and really taking on as much of that I would call it process guidance as, as we could. So I think we're getting we're getting much better at talking about just broader what the decarbonization planning process looks like, how you implement it within your company or or for a specific building. 
Um, and yeah, there, that, the tool exists to help you support, to, to support you and get you through the process, but clarifying the process as opposed to clarifying how you use the tool is so much more important. So that's where we're really, we really have made a lot of progress. Yeah. And, and for listeners, the, you know, NYSERDA's team um, in working with these partners um, and uh, overall um, developing the Empire Building Challenge um, program, they've kind of developed uh, this roadmap into um, an approach that they call resource efficient decarbonization um, or resource efficient electrification. Um, and so there's a lot of resources that they've developed around that framing as well that the SDA tool kind of um, fits pretty um, neatly uh, into into that. I mean, maybe um, for folks that haven't seen it, um, you could maybe walk us through like, I know we're on a podcast, so we lack visual aids, <laughs> but, you know, if you could walk us through sort of the components of the tool and like, what does a building owner need to have in hand to kind of approach this tool for it to be useful? Yeah. It's it, the basic information you start with is the same that you would for, for an energy audit. So what is this building, right? Like how much en energy is it using? What are the fuel types? What are the system types? What are the pieces of equipment that are on site that are using the energy? So that's kind of the engineering baseline, right? What we've asked people to, to consider as they, as they start out that might be a bit new is what we'd call more of like a real estate baseline. So not just, you know, the building and its systems, but what does this building exist for in the market, right? Is it is it a multi-tenant building that people are leasing for offices? And if it is, you know, where is it in its life cycle, right? Is it fully leased up and, you know, it's recently been refinished and running pretty well and considered kind of top of the market? Or is it one that's kind of got aging systems and maybe, you know, it doesn't have all the flash and it has kind of fallen down a bit, uh, isn't, isn't the top of the market anymore? Um, is it a building that it's going to need a refresh of some sort? You know, is it going to need significant work done in the next three, five, seven years, no matter what? Um, and we bring that in to just try to get folks to think about this exercise of decarbonization planning more, more broadly than decarbonization. You know, an ideal case here is one in which the decarb plan is sort of subordinate to a broader capital planning exercise or just an excuse to start to do all the other things that need to be done and plan for them. You know, that's, that's sort of a symptom of success. So if you, if you start with a good technical baseline and a good real estate baseline, um, you've got the, the core of it. And what we've built into the SDA is kind of an automated way to take what I would call the equipment inventory and the remaining useful life for all the important energy using equipment and auto generate a business as usual. So you can specify a like for like replacement cost. That's sort of your, if nothing else changes cost of an action, because that's what you wanna compare your cost of doing something to. Where that's different from what energy audits typically do is they look for ECMs and payback periods, which is implicitly saying, we're gonna compare the cost of doing something to the a zero cost of doing nothing. And that's just not true. So we try to build that in, get as easy as possible. And that's gonna get better. You know, uh, throughout this process, we're looking for, for excuses to give people shortcuts and, and say, you don't, you don't need to go and do a bunch of research to fill this in. It's been done for you, or at least, you know, we know what the answer is for buildings that are similar enough. And, and here are the, here, here's kind of a shortcut. So that's your business as usual exercise. Then you start the engineering process of saying, well, okay, you know, 
what would the ultimate solution look like? So obviously get the fossil fuel using equipment out of the building, but how do you do that smartly? Um, and maybe it's not that easy. You know, maybe you've got steam or maybe you've got um, a CHP plant <laughs> that's really not going to get touched for a long time. There's lots of different things that could be in a building that could be complexifiers, but you start the process of thinking about where you need to go and, and how to put that into a real plan. Um, and what we want to do is get you to consider a few different decarb pathways, right? So building from a business as usual, looking at, you know, sort of decarb pathway one, decarb pathway two, decarb pathway three, that's what gets run through a discounted cash flow model. So that's where your assumptions about future energy costs the, and the costs of the upgrades that you would make in the future and what year, you know, year actions in year four, year five, year six, you assign all the ECMs to different years and it will kind of pull together the different alternatives that you're comparing. So we've tried to make that as easy as possible, but as you, you know, each step of the process is sort of valuable in its own way. And so that's part of why I'm saying, you know, you, the, the tool exists so you can get all the way through the process in a single tool, but you may only need, you know, step one, you may only need to, to spend some time with business as usual before you get to the place where you're looking at different decarb options. That's completely reasonable place to start. And then the last piece of the tool is kind of a, okay, what happens if our assumptions about the future are different? So what if we change escalation rates for different uh, fuels? What if we look at escalating costs of carbon offsets? What if we look at changes to the allowable carbon emitted, say for an update to local all 97 or another city regulation? Um, it's capable of doing all of that, which is actually quite a lot. So again, that's what I was saying. Like it's it's proof of concept that you can you can really look at different scenarios and run them through a, a financial model, but built from an energy audit uh, basis. It's really interesting. It it sort of gets me excited about kind of additional opportunities in this space and at the risk of sort of wanting a kind of killer app that does everything. Um, it also, you know, you do wonder if there's scope to, to broaden the tool eventually to include like um, which decarbonization strategies, you know, map also with priorities around health and wellness of occupants and communities or around prioritizing the resiliency um, either of the building itself or its, or its immediate context. Um, there's, there's, uh, so many exciting options there. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been focused at the building level cause that's where the building blocks kind of have been. Yeah. I don't, there, there's no roadmap for doing this at a, you know, a multiple building level or a portfolio level. All we know is that basically every building is going to need to have a decar plan. <laughs> and right. once the building has a good decar plan, then you might want to think about prioritization and, and what are your opportunities for accelerating? You see, you know, real estate companies across the board making commitments to reach net zero, you know, uh, starting to adopt science-based targets. Um, and, I, you know, once they have decarb plans for every single building, there might be better opportunities to accelerate some decarbonization <laughs> efforts to try to meet those targets. But it, the, the, the strategic way of, of going about planning, so you make sure you're, that you're going after the big opportunities first, you know, that's, that's tricky. That's that's sort of everybody's going to do that their own way. Everybody's going to do it with with the, the, the people that they have and the, the internal processes that they have. So I, I sort of anticipate that this that the better we get at communicating the process, the better people will get at figuring out how they are going to do it. So I anticipate 
you know, these sort of tools moving out of Excel, um, moving into some, something that's got a much easier user interface and probably getting a little more streamlined, right? Like we could add features to the Excel tool all day, but then it gets more and more clunky, more and more difficult to teach people how to use. I, just, I don't think that's, I don't think that's where we want to go. I think we want to make it more, more usable, at least for the core of the decarb planning process and really, you know, get it out of Excel. That's not, that's not, that's not where we want to be. Yep. Does the tool go so far as to sort of align the outcomes of those, say, one, two, three um, decarbonization pathways? Does it show you how those sit relative to uh, regulatory milestones, like against your local potential local N97 penalties or against science-based target um, um, goalposts, things like that? It does. At the moment, it's set up for local law 97 because that's the, you know, the nicer version. And that's what they've been focused on for, for New York. The, the visual output that I think folks should get comfortable viewing and understanding is, is really a, a carbon emissions trajectory over time. So think, yep. you know, declining carbon emissions year over year. And superimposed on that are the local I-97 step downs. So kind of a piecemeal stair step down that you want to see your building's trajectory stay under that that limit to avoid getting any fines. Um, and you get used to seeing emissions declining, even in a business as usual scenario, because of the assumptions about what's going to happen on the grid, um, which people can discuss. But you know that's that's where I think building owners should start. They should solve their the problem that they have in front of them and not worry too much about what's happening on the other side of the meter, at least yet. Um, and then Imagine different different trajectories that are your decarb pathway alternatives. As you're choosing what to do, you know there's different ways down, and some move down more quickly than others. And some might have you know big big steps down, where others might be more linear. That's kind of carbon output number one. Uh, then you backing all that up is all the typical financial metrics, like what what's the total capital cost of this alternative versus another. Um, what does it do to my operating expenses? What does it do to my net operating income? Uh, and how does that look over time? Like how, how do I budget for this? Just all you know, typical asset management uh, metrics and requirements, um, but kind of under the hood of that, that carbon intensity chart. I, I love the notion that you're trying to keep the tool at the kind of optimum level of complexity. <laughs> so enough to make it useful, but not so much that uh, it's it's too challenging for anyone to approach, which is definitely a problem we have in this industry. Um, I, I think we really got to push back on complexity, right? Like this, uh, the real estate industry functions on cash flow and future cash flow. And that's what we're talking about. And at the end of the day, decarbonization is just, modernization and it's going to be part of what they're doing no matter what. So it's their job to find the smartest path to I always tell people like it we want to figure out what the right thing to do is. Like what's the right decarb pathway? Yes, from a financial perspective, but also for our ability to implement. Then we want to figure out what's the smartest way to do the right thing. Those are kind of those are those are different. And and breaking it apart into those two pieces and supporting it with the appropriate sort of technical rigor and the appropriate like real estate body of knowledge, that's what we have to do to, to help get these questions answered in really comprehensible ways from different silos within different companies, right? The, I think at the end of the day, the real estate people are going to want to know that 
that we've got a plan, that it's technically sound, that it's as cost effective as it can be. Basically, that's the smartest way to do the right thing. And, and if we can keep it at that level, that really high level narrative, um, it, it fights some of the complexity. It doesn't, we don't have to go down the what if questions forever because <laughs> right. at the end of the day, this uncertainty is fundamental, right? Like you can't, you have to make decisions now. You can't just put things off forever. You, you've got to, you've got to commit. Yeah. I mean, it, it's bringing it back around to your own career a little bit. It's interesting to me that these tools, you know, are about both energy conservation measures and also financial analysis, but the latter isn't really taught in engineering schools. And I'm curious how you sort of personally, like what you did to, um, to kind of upskill yourself and getting yourself familiar um, and educated about the finance side of things. Yeah. I, do, I mean, everybody gets an engineering economy class in school. So you get the fundamentals. Now they don't tell you, tell you that when you move to different sectors, everybody's doing the same thing, but it's got different jargon. And that's the kind of the secret. <laughs> you got to learn the jargon and translate right. it back to wherever it is, however you learned it. So for me, it happened. So like I said, I did energy modeling first. So I've been thinking a lot about how buildings function and, and how do you quantify that? Like, how do you model how a building performs? Um, when I got to DC, the question became, how do you model the policies that are trying to impact how buildings will perform? So kind of scaling up. Uh, so I go from energy modeling to policy modeling, and then I start working with different private sector clients. And part of what they want me to help them do is pull together a business case for doing, you know, option A or option B. And now I'm into the financial modeling. And in each case, you know, we're trying to do the same things. <laughs> it's really not, right. they're not that, they're not that different. So if anything, I would encourage people to be more confident as they kind of, like you said, try to upskill themselves. I think most people have the skills. They just, they just gotta, they need the, they need the kind of Rosetta stone translation. And, and that really opens up the, <laughs> opens up the world and we're, not the most advanced, you know, anytime I, there's a metric or a way of looking at something or the way of quantifying something that I'm trying to find where it's been done before I go to, yes, of course, the financial industry, because they're so analytics obsessed, but I also go to baseball and you can pretty much find an example of any type of statistical <laughs> that you want in those two places that you can bring back to your, your particular question. It's, you know, there's a lot of people thinking about this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great, great attitude and a, and a great, great framing. Um, this has been a great conversation. Um, really appreciate you being with us uh, today. I'm, I'm curious to know um, what's next for Ember Strategies. Uh, what, what's what's next for Lane Burt in the next uh, next few months, next few years? Well, next few months certainly keeping up. It's it's busy. I, I'm a, a one man shop over here, and um, you know I learned pretty quickly when I stepped out on my own that the I'm not the uh, like the solo entrepreneur type. I'm more the um, the guy who wants to work on different interesting stuff. So I joined a lot of different teams, right? <laughs> and that's that's basically how I how I've been able to to function, and it's been and been great. Um, and you know, I've got a lot of clients that I'm working with right now that are really focused on this question and and doing it at some scale. So it's an it's an exciting time to work on buildings, and I think we're all lucky to be doing it. Right now, um, longer term, I you know I want to keep doing the the same thing. I, I this has been a, a great journey um, from the the technical world to the political world and back again. 
Um, and like I said, I'd recommend it to, to any young engineer that was was thinking about what to do and maybe didn't want to take uh, that job that was put in front of them right out of school to you know go to go to DC and, and plot your own way through. It's great advice. Great advice, Lane. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on Radio BX. Absolutely appreciate it.